0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Keys often crossed the border while in Egypt, but this night stood out. Keys and some of the guys rented a hotel suite and hired a prostitute. They'd all been drinking, and she went to a separate room with Keys. Half an hour had elapsed when the woman came flying out Keys, close behind. He tried to give her cash, but she wouldn't take it. He got in front of her and blocked the door. In a panic, she kicked Keyes hard enough to get away. The other guys, this soldier later claimed, were in shock. What did you do to freak her out so much? Keyes said, I threw her around a little bit. He later told Jeff Bell, I wasn't going to let her run the show. From American Predator by Maureen Callahan. Well, hello, Murder Bookies. I am your host, Jill. I am back with episode 48, Second Cast, Macab Chit Chat on American Predator by Maureen Callahan, part three. I began this story with episode 46, Killer Thaw, and continued into episode 47, Meticulous Methods. So if you haven't listened to both of these, you will really follow along much better if you do. We are beginning to get a sense of the scope of Israel Keyes' modus operandi, his odd travel, selecting random victims of opportunity, as the investigators try to fill in his past, hoping to locate victims of this serial killer who went unnoticed for 14 years. So, age 20, Israel Keyes joined the army, and he was a good soldier by all accounts. His challenges were... He had no idea how to socialize or make friends, and he knew zero about pop culture. What's football? Who's Brad Pitt? What's Nirvana? He simply explained saying he was Amish. Evidently, catching up, he did come to love football, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Stone Temple Pilots. He'd try LSD, meh, but he loved cocaine, but stopped cold turkey. Keys felt too out of control, and that was just intolerable for him. He really liked drinking alcohol. It relaxed him, making him more conversational. He got a DUI driving on base, which was not repeated. Izzy abstained around his family, afraid he'd let something slip about the horrendous things he had done. Keys told investigators he could give names of the guys he served with, but none of them actually knew him except maybe one guy. Then, he proposed to the girl in Colville, kissing for the first time when she accepted. They'd wait for sex until after they were married. But Israel Keyes was a very good liar. Keyes was out soliciting sex workers. Something else he kept from his fiancée. He was bisexual, which came up during his mandatory psych evaluation. Only Kimberly, his Anchorage girlfriend... Knew, because he was drinking one night, got careless cruising the internet, and she found the chats on his computer. In late 2000, still engaged, he met Tammy. Ten years older, she had an eight-year-old son from a previous marriage. On their first date, Tammy recalls being unimpressed by Keys. Tall, thin, all arms, legs, and a big nose. He looked really nerdy. Tammy was half Native American and half Black, so it appears that the white supremacy of the arc years hadn't stuck. He and Tammy bonded over traumatic childhoods. Tammy had grown up in Nia Bay, a small reservation in Washington state, and was raised much like Israel. No plumbing, no electricity, lots of deprivation. Tammy also understood the love of the wilderness, gorgeous landscapes seeing the stars like glitter across the midnight sky, clear crystal water, and the duality of poverty and forest splendor. Tammy never felt sorry for herself. She worked hard at school trying to build a productive life, optimistic and independent. These were qualities that attracted keys. Quote, he was shocked to find an older woman out of the real world not part of his parents' lunatic fringe, with a similar backstory, end quote. They loved heavy metal, hardcore slasher films, alcohol, and the sex was the best Tammy had ever had. They were inseparable. Then, Tammy called Keys at Fort Lewis. She was pregnant. Keyes told her he was not ready for this and that she should get an abortion brokenhearted she wanted this baby and she told keys forget me and move on with your life i got this by the way tammy had no idea he was engaged keys's november 4 2000 journal entry was the last time the fiance was mentioned speaking to agents in 2012 the ex fiance told them that in the spring of 2001 after visiting keys she felt something was wrong he didn't want her to meet any of his army buddies. He lied saying he was off on a training mission when he was at the base. He didn't call for days. They were supposed to get married in August or September. And he's confided in her that she really didn't know who he was, that he would slept with someone else and no longer believed in God. The engagement ended and he changed his mind about the abortion, feeling Tammy was his best shot at a stable life. Israel thought a lot about becoming a father, thinking he'd be good at it. Hey, the man literally raised seven younger siblings who loved him. Believe it or not, he was a caretaker. He liked cooking, he liked taking care of little kids. He could break the cycle and give his child all the care and attention he never received. Honorably discharged from the Army, he and Tammy set up housekeeping. Keys took a job in park and recreations. And their house was a train wreck. But remember, Keyes knows construction, so he set about doing repairs and fixing it up. He bonded with Tammy's son, never excluding him. Eventually, the boy came to see Israel as a loving stepfather. But all was not idyllic. Keys would rant smugly about a variety of issues, lecturing so superior in his point of view. Tammy came to see he craved control his drinking increased. When I say increased, I mean increased. A bottle of wine, a fifth of Jim Bean, and a six-pack every night. When drunk, he would tell her he was a bad person. Tammy refused to believe this, though, thinking it was his childhood coming back to haunt him. His satanic tattoos, branding himself with an upside-down cross on his chest, it was all delayed response to his weird religious childhood, where he wanted his mother's approval while holding her in contempt. One night, Izzy and Tammy were watching a true crime special on fugitives who'd gotten into a shootout with the police. These men, Cheney and Chevy Kehoe, were arrested. With Chevy committing a triple homicide, getting three consecutive life sentences, and Cheney receiving 24 years. Izzy told a stunned Tammy. He grew up with Cheney and Chevy in the Ark, the white fundamentalist racist anti-Semitic survivalist cult in Washington, but then he shut down, not wanting to talk about it. Gee, I can't imagine why. And I guarantee you, he did bad things with the Keos as kids together while they were growing up in Colville. Birds of a feather flock together. And Halloween 2022. Tammy and Israel's daughter was born in a hospital, the first keys in a generation to be born in one. Once Tammy went into labor, Israel was a wreck and stayed by her side the whole time. Tammy saw the epiphany when she was born. Israel's entire being shifted. Then two weeks later, his father, Jeff Keys, died. How? What happened? It's all a little bit convoluted. The family was traveling by train, and Jeff, who, remember, doesn't do medicine, doctors, or hospitals, got sick. The conductor became so alarmed, he had Jeff removed from the train and taken to a hospital. Maybe. Jeff Keyes died with no death record, no obituary, no death certificate, no grave. Keyes never spoke about his father, while his army buddies suggested that Israel had been abused. Israel Keys launched himself into fatherhood, letting Tammy sleep, changing diapers, feeding his daughter, taking her to daycare. But soon, Tammy began suffering from abdominal pain, which was eventually diagnosed as uterine cancer. The hysterectomy caused her to go into early menopause, and she worried, would Keys stick around? Between post-operative pain and this anxiety, Tammy became reliant on medication. Maltese was braiding toddler hair, going dress shopping, and packing lunch. The upside to Tammy being drugged? She never knew what he was up to. The worse she got, the more freedom Israel had. Summer 2004, Keyes moved himself and his daughter to a separate home. Part of him would always love Tammy, but exposing his daughter to her chaos was just not happening. He'd met Kimberly Anderson, a traveling nurse, living in Port Angeles online in 2005. Older than Tammy, she was financially secure, successful, independent, well-traveled. Tammy desperately wanted him back, but she was high and crashed her car and was sentenced to 25 days in jail and two months in rehab. And that was it. It was over. Israel told Tammy he was going with Kimberly to Anchorage, which triggered a brief custody fight with a cold-blooded Keys outmaneuvering Tammy. He drove away for good on March 1st, 2007, but before going to Anchorage, Keyes spent three months traveling up and down the West Coast and going into Mexico. He refused to discuss any of this with the psychiatrist or the FBI. So, oh, my God, how many kill kits, how many lives were lost? Now, next goal in the investigation, identifying victims without Israel Keyes' assistance. When did he start? Right, 1996, Colville, Washington. At this time, Israel Keyes was a tall, lanky 18-year-old. The child celebrity of tiny Colville was 12-year-old Julie Harris a double amputee who wore prosthetic feet due to a rare blood disease. Julie was an upbeat girl with a quick sense of humor, and she'd won a gold medal in downhill skiing at the Special Olympics and was a source of pride for everyone in town. March 3rd, 1996, she left home in the morning and vanished into thin air. Mom, Sherry Odegaard's live-in boyfriend, Don, was scrutinized first because he and Julie had argued the night before over her finishing her homework. This also caused speculation that Julie may have run away. Police finally received a report that Julie had last been seen with a man in a trench coat. A month later, Julie's prosthetic feet were found by the banks of the Colville River near Kettle Falls, a 13-minute drive from Heartbroken, grieving, Sherry Odegaard went through sheer hell for the next months, temporarily losing custody of her sons, and was ordered into grief counseling. Police suspected her and Don of withholding information, although Sherry never suspected Don. Then, a year after Julie's disappearance, some kids out playing stumbled across Julie's remains just outside Colville, this taking a terrible toll on both Sherry and Don who subsequently broke up. Sherry told the Murder on Main Street podcast that neither of them fully processed what happened to Julie. They never had time to grieve for the bright, loving 12-year-old because they were immediately put on the defensive. It was in 2012 Sherry learned that Israel Keys was a suspect in Julie's murder. Once she saw a photo of him, a 1996 memory of Keyes resurfaced. Keys and Julie were both up at a friend's house, and Keys had given Sherry the creeps, which is a very real psychophysical response to subliminal inputs. Twelve-year-old girls are boy crazy, wanting boyfriends and all of that drama. And Sherry added that none of the boys liked Julie because of her disability. Now Sherry believes that the eighteen-year-old Israel Keys flattered Julie giving her the attention she craved and drew her in. Julie's best friend also said she'd seen Israel Keys at their pool lessons, watching them. Now, Julie's autopsy report is vague, but a rope around her neck indicated strangulation, which fits with his MO. What improved DNA technology today helped to decisively nail down Julie Harris's killer? I'm not sure. Keys was really meticulous. He was so careful. But sadly, a young girl unable to run away would be the perfect starter victim for a wannabe serial killer. Now, in June 1997, another girl vanished from the Colville area, Cassandra Cassie Emerson, also 12 years old. She and her mom, Marlene, lived in a trailer which was destroyed by arson, with Marlene's charred body found inside. Police suspected Cassie had been kidnapped. Keyes had told FBI agent Payne, quote, I'd start fires in the wood. Arson covers up murder, end quote. At first, the local undersheriff, Gilbert Gere, believed the killer was someone known by the family. Family dysfunction and drug issues made the investigation difficult. Previously, in 1989, Marlene lost custody of Cassie to her sister, where Cassie lived until 1992. Then Cassie moved in with her grandmother, Elaine Williams, until 1996. After that, she returned to her mom's house two months before Marlene filed a restraining order against her boyfriend. So there's a lot of variables in play here. As they worked closely with the FBI, Sheriff Craig Thayer stated at the time that Dom was not a suspect. Then, the following April, The Spokesman Review reported that Cassie's badly decomposed remains were found by horseback riders in a thickly wooded area where a number of logging roads intersected. Both cases remain unsolved. Note, when Keyes left for Oregon, the kidnappings and murders in the Colville area stopped. While Keyes never admitted killing Julie, Cassie, or Marlene, he did say the first thing he ever did was to burn down a trailer. I believe him. The psych evaluation was complete, filed by federal prosecutor Kevin Feldis on April 29, 2012. Then something weird happened. The next day, Feldis and two agents from Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, so the ATF, secretly interviewed Keys, never logging this interview. What was Felder's keeping secret from his fellow investigators? Wouldn't that be a crappy thing to do, and couldn't that really cause some problems? Still looking for the courier's bodies, the FBI began searching a landfill near the abandoned farmhouse. Their plan was to limit Keyes' access to this kind of information, as the chance of finding any remains on 100 acres with 400,000 tons of trash six months after the murders was not great. But three weeks after his confession, Keyes now asked Feldus if they had found the bodies yet. And Feldis told Keyes no, they hadn't. Incredulous, Keyes asked, well, did they have the correct house? Quote, because the article I read said they quit digging a week ago Friday. End quote. Feldis paused, then said, quote, they're, they're still looking, I guess, is what I'm saying. End quote. Once again, Keys sucked out all the power in the room, leaving Feldus flaccid. Then Feldus admitted that the farmhouse had been demolished, with Keys realizing the bodies were probably in a landfill. Keys now declined to help them any further. Damn it, if he hadn't confessed, the FBI would never have tied him to the courier's disappearance. Realization Israel Keys was better than he knew. All right, to give the man his due, Feldus did do one thing right. He kept Keyes talking. Keyes told a story. With urges running amok, he went to a remote Lover's Lane park, poised with a gun and his home-constructed silencer. He saw a young couple fixating on them, was going to kill them, but then a vehicle approached a patrol car. This did not give Keyes pause. He was excited. This was an opportunity. Quote, ever since I was a kid, it's like my white supremacist roots or something that I was going to ambush a cop. I was just amped up enough that I almost did it. I almost got myself in a lot of trouble with that one. End quote. The officer called for backup, which saved the couple and both blue lives because no one would have known who'd done it. Israel rocked back and forth, physically excited as he recounted the tale. That's why he bought a police scanner, vowing to never hunt in Anchorage again, and went back to his old stomping grounds in the east. In the east? Is that a clue? Had he hunted in the east more than the west? He would also admit to having hundreds of plans, and brag of a grand plan which he wouldn't get into until the couriers were located. Oh, and he wanted to see the pictures. Blink, blink. Feldus asked of the bodies. Oh yeah, yeah. He wanted to revel in what he'd done. And at this point, Feldus was truly petrified of this guy, and Israel Keys knew it. Steve Payne confronted Feldus about the secret interrogation. Jolene Grodin didn't quite believe that such shenanigans could occur with such a high-level suspect. The damage could be enormous. Payne recapped for Feldes. So the FBI team is slowly building rapport, with Keyes actually liking Bell and Payne. Grodin was their secret weapon, the woman with authority in the room, who made Keys uncomfortable, which could embarrass Keys and make him slip up, which would be invaluable. Did Feldes understand if Grodin and Payne spoke to Keys unaware of his interview and Keyes made reference to it, Keyes would pick up on their surprise and the fragile credibility that they'd worked so hard to establish would crumble. And Keyes would exploit the gulf between these two police groups. Huh, this did not have to happen. I'd have banned Feldis from the interrogation room and the consequences be damned. But that did not happen without any explanation. Keys kept pushing for an execution date, while the judicial institutional wheels turned slowly, with multiple jurisdictions weighing in. And Payne, Bell, groden they just knew Keys was making plans for escape. They just had that gut feeling. He was smart enough to make a plan. This also reminds me of Ted Bundy, who escaped twice, and he was Israel Keys's favorite serial killer who he'd read about extensively. Regarding the death penalty, Feldus droned on that there were mechanisms in place to prevent a wrongful death by the federal judicial system. Key said, quote, The bottom line is, everyone sitting in this room wants the same thing. You want all the information I can give you. You want me to be punished, and I want to be punished. So I mean, obviously, we're all working towards the same goals, whether or not we agree on how to get there. End quote. Once again, Keyes hijacked the interrogation from talking about his other victims to his desire for the death penalty. Even though they'd uncovered three likely victims, Julie Harris, Cassie, and Marlene Emerson, without Keyes' help, they couldn't close the case without a confession. With the largest recovery search in FBI history, they could not find the bodies of Bill and Lorraine Courier. Keyes left in their faces, the FBI taking a real hit. However, they had succeeded in keeping Israel Keyes' name out of the media. Manipulating Keyes, Bell said the only way to keep his bosses from reaching out to other jurisdictions, which could create a leak, was another confession. Did Keyes want to protect his family or not? Well, Keyes did because they still believed he was innocent. Kimberly was still coming to visit, believing him. And Israel said, quote, everyone I've known to a certain extent, they're my victims too, because they're going to have to pay for all of this for a lot of years to come, end quote. Yet, at the same time, Keyes craved the attention for his exemplary serial killing skills. While Keyes wouldn't give them a body, he said he'd give them something to confirm the timeline. He had robbed a bank in Tupper Lake. Cat Nelson found it. Tupper Lake, New York, April 21, 2009, bank robbery. But that wasn't enough. They needed something more high stakes. After much debate, Keyes revealed that there was one body in New York that had received some publicity. Cross referencing his travel routes with those who went missing, Kat Nelson dove in. If they could identify this body, maybe Keys would talk. Meanwhile, the Israel Kimberly timeline was falling into place confirming that Kimberly was totally in the dark. His solo travel was untangled from their trips, and his more frequent destinations were Oregon, California, Wyoming, Utah, New York, Maine, Indiana, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, Ohio, Minnesota, Arizona, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, Kansas, Illinois, and Hawaii tiny towns, and major towns, and don't forget his trips into Canada. All right, a little overwhelming. How do you even begin investigating this enormous area? And by the way, Keyes said, quote, Canadians don't count, end quote, which is really ominous. Canadians know that you count to me very much. Now, Keyes had spent time as a young man in Montreal, where he said he hired quite a number of sex workers. So it isn't uncommon for serial killers to kind of practice, especially bondage and tying people up, on those they hire. Because if something goes wrong, the risk is minimal. We know Keyes was into bondage among his other deviant murders practices. Surprise! Keyes went into Mexico. His journal entry from May 12th to 15th, 2006. He had surgery, then traveled back to Washington. June 21st, 2006, he was back in Mexico for follow-up care. But follow-up care for what? What surgery? We had no idea. April 24th and 27th, 2007, traveled to South Dakota for dental work and a medical lap band fill. That's a gastric band. Why? Keese was not overweight and the guy ran marathons. April 29th, 2007, appointment in Tijuana for CosMed. And then he spent two days recovering at a spa in Napa Valley. October 8th, 2007. Pre-op with operation on October 10th. Another mystery. So you have to wonder, was the gastric band designed to minimize the amount of food he needed? To cease a growling stomach, which could give him away? Had he had fingerprints removed? Body hair lasered off? Callahan writes, quote, Here was something else far less pressing but no less sinister, had Keyes begun biohacking his own body in his quest to become the perfect serial killer, end quote. I think yes, his tactics are extraordinary. Now his time in the army was still a blank. Finding his army buddies took time, and the questions for them were numerous. What was his physical appearance like then? His religion? What kind of training did he have? Was he homosexual, racist, or white supremacist? His plans for post army. What did they know about his brandings? The answers were he was six foot tall, 230 pounds of muscle, with an enormous nose. His family was Amish like. He'd been disowned for joining the army. He never spoke about his dad, though they thought he'd been abused by him. His mom and sisters moved from cult to cult. They all agreed he was a super soldier who thrived on training, extremely intelligent, a jack-of-all-trades who could fix anything. He spent his own time and money sewing for himself a ghillie suit. That's a head-to-toe camouflage outfit used by snipers. Now that's weird, because Keyes was assigned to a mortar unit. Why would he need a ghillie suit? Was he trained as a sniper? No idea. The Department of the Army released very few pages on Keyes' military record. They knew nothing about his month long training in Panama, his deployment to the Egyptian Israeli border, his visits to Saudi Arabia and Israel. Yet the army guys' stories diverged as well. Some said Keys was nonviolent, some he'd punched out a guy. His girlfriend came to visit, some never saw her. He was not a prejudiced person, but he was a homophobic white supremacist. A story emerged. Having snuck into Israel with his buddies, there was a girl he'd met in Tel Aviv, a Norwegian exchange student, who told him where her dorm was as they were casually chatting. Okay, no, do not share your hotel or home location with strangers, people. Don't do that. So, Kant reflected back on this, explaining, quote, I wouldn't say it was, like, an outright rape, because we were hanging out and stuff. Well, I did lose control a little bit as things progressed. And that's when I realized that if I was going to do this kind of stuff, it had to be just complete strangers from then on, end quote. Oh, God. So, FYI, no means no, no matter what, no matter if you're hanging out, which is irrelevant. No means no, every time, consent matters. Now, the guys in his platoon recognized that Keys had some psychological issues And kind of pulled away, except one guy named Perk, Israel's confidant, who provided great insight. Perk told the team that he and Izzy talked about regular army stuff, you know, how to steal money or commit crimes. My veteran hubby disagrees on this, by the way. That is not regular army talk. They discussed plans for after they got out of the military. Perk saying Izzy planned to rob banks along rural highways and kidnap people, holding them for ransom on a massive scale. He planned to ask for a reasonable amount of ransom money so people could actually pay it. But no one would ever be returned. Question, was Israel kidding? No, Perk said, he wasn't kidding. Question, was he surprised that Israel had been arrested for kidnapping and murder? He was surprised that Israel had been caught. He was smarter than that. Now, with this new information, the FBI had to reach out to Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Panama for missing person reports that fit his window of opportunity. What about Israel's brandings, the upside-down cross on his chest? Well, that represented his rejection of God and his interest in Satanism. He's explained that there had to be some higher reason that he was like this, hurting people and animals without any shame or remorse. But believing in the devil meant he needed to believe in God, and he didn't believe in God. Keith said, quote, And I grew up with good people. Everybody's nice to each other, and everything's all sunshine and roses. And that's why it is so disturbing to me. I thought everybody else was faking it, and everybody was like me, and they just didn't act like it. Or I figured I was a demon child, end quote. May twenty third, 2012. Bell and Payne knew Keyes was up to something. In court, as his defense lawyer began to address the judge, Keyes sprang out of his chair, flipped over the gallery railing, free from his handcuffs and leg irons, escaping. It took a nimble guard with a taser to stop the insanely strong Keys, who was utterly in ecstasy as the electricity coursed through him. A huge black eye for the judicial system. Bell was now deeply concerned that there was no supermax prison in Alaska and the guards at the Anchorage Correctional Complex were ill-equipped to deal with a criminal like Israel Keys. Bell met with his poker buddy and correctional guard, Lieutenant Rick Chandler, who agreed his guards needed additional training, asking the maximum security prison in Seward, Alaska, for assistance. Now Chandler should have acquired high-security, high-tech restraints, Taser like stun cuffs or coated handcuffs and leg restraints, but he did not. Bell was also trying to be honest with his own mistakes, recalling a day he had to strip search keys before transport, with Bell left alone with keys. No armed guard inside, and the one outside the room had wandered off. Keys could have easily killed Bell with his bare hands, a chilling realization as Bell leaned towards the glass window trying to sound authoritarian, asking to be let out. Bell had been truly afraid. He noticed Keys was making odd movements with his jaw, revealing it was a shard of wood. Gars had been given Keyes pencils, pencils he whittled into lockpicks with his teeth. Bell told Rick Chandler, no more pencils. Bell noticed Keyes was wearing a thin plastic bracelet. Inquiring? The guards explained that he takes his lunch to court with him, and that's the cellophane wrap from the sandwich. Bell was floored. Quote, you know he can make stuff out of that, right? End quote. Same issue with the dental floss they kept giving him. Take it all away. Throw it all away. Bell tried. He really did. But his warnings were not taken seriously, because this was exactly how Keys almost managed to escape. Keys had been given, his lunch, the standard carton of milk, apple, and the wrapped sandwich. He stored up the pencil slivers to pick the locks on his cuffs and leg irons, then used the cellophane to make it appear the leg irons were tied together. Chandler promised to do better, but would the rest of the guards. 24 hours after the escape attempt, Payne and Bell spoke with Keys about this debacle. Keys had called attention to himself yesterday. They promised they'd try to fix it for him. They also asked him why he'd try to escape. He said, quote, Everybody knows what my bottom line concern is, that I want this all wrapped up as quickly as possible. And I was in open court yesterday. And obviously that's not happening. Quote. Keys accused them of deliberately dragging their feet. Two months in, they were no closer to any conclusion, no execution date, no global agreement on future confessions. Five days later, a Vermont official sent Keyes a letter promising not to charge him for the Courier's murder and to shield Keyes' name from the media, which was progress. In return, Keyes gave them a limited amount of information on bodies in Washington State. Two victims were murdered between July 2001 and 2005. They'd been a male-female couple. Two others, females, were killed separately in the summer or the fall of 2005 or six. He'd used his bayliner boat to dispose of one or two of the bodies in Lake Crescent. Why Lake Crescent? What's well, the deepest in Washington? Not a lot to go on, but Kat Nelson worked her magic and tied Israel's cell phone to the vicinity of a double murder in Washington on July eleventh, two 2006. A married couple and a mother and daughter set out to hike the remote Pinnacle Lake Trail in Mount Baker-Smolkamee National Forest. Cheerful, happy people, they met keys and began chatting amicably. At a fork in the trail, the husband and wife went right towards Bear Lake, and the mother and daughter headed left to Lake Pinnacle. Later, the wife heard a loud noise in the distance like thunder, but the sky was clear. After their picnic lunch, they headed back. About 2.30 p.m., the couple encountered the mother and daughter again. They were hunched over, their dead bodies posed on the trail. Horrified, the man grabbed his ice axe. Whoever had killed might still be around, and they set off down the rough terrain, moving very quickly, simply terrified. The immediate cause of death of Maria Cooper, 56, and her daughter, Suzanne Stodden, 27, shot in the head by a twenty-two. Bizarre daylight murders, their deaths grabbed national headlines. Maria and Suzanne were both loved in their community, and they both loved reading. They would have made wonderful murder bookies. Keys preferred remote locations like national parks. He was possibly a sniper, owned a camo suit, Knew the woods inside and out. He liked targeting pairs, patiently waiting for the perfect victim. Quote, Back when I was smart, I would let them come to me. End quote, he told the team, "Maria and Suzanne were killed between 1:48 and 4:41 p.m. Nelson also found the signature tell. Keys's cell phone had gone dark after the escape attempt." Authorities searched Keyes' prison cell, finding a letter to his brother that included the line, They can't convict a dead man. He also wrote about six victims, three known, but not the others. They also recovered a noose made from a bed sheet. He had made allusions to suicide all along, but these confirmed he had a plan. He always had a plan. Police and FBI warned them at the Anchorage Correctional Center, right? no, no, nothing changed. When Lieutenant Chandler learned Keyes was still shaving with disposable razors, he posted a sign, do not give this man a razor blade. Keys's new electric razor could only be used under supervision, which was ignored. Confronted, Bell asked Chandler if he wanted Keyes to commit suicide, and Chandler said that he could only write the note and put it on the door, quote, and if these idiots don't read it, there's nothing I can do, end quote. By the way, this is called foreshadowing, okay. Frustration overload. Bell couldn't get the guards to do their jobs. Payne couldn't get Feldis out of the room. Keys still couldn't fire his attorney or get an execution date. And the core team of Payne, Bell, and Grodin, who had a solid rapport with Keys, were being reassigned. Keys took advantage of this disconnect and distraction, soon trading his paper slippers for sneakers with shoelaces. All right, to be fair, part of the problem here, the ACC distrusted the feds. Okay, interdepartmental problems. But this is a meticulous, notorious serial killer. So put on your big boy pants and man up. Do your frigging jobs and keeping the prisoner secure. And that means alive and unable to escape. Oh, God. I hate it when adults act like little kids. I really do. And it got worse. In July 2012, Israel was told the landfill search had been called off. And Israel kicked himself. Again, the only evidence they had against him were the interviews he had granted them. Now he was reassured that the wheels of justice roll slowly. Only two days later, a Vermont NBC station. WCAX, named Israel Keyes as a murder suspect in the Courier case, blowing the omnipotent FBI media handling to shreds. They had promised over and over that they'd protect Keyes' family and his daughter, and poof, quote, they had fucked up, Keyes was incensed, end quote. Bell was dismayed. He believed that finding a victim without Israel Keyes' help would make him confess as he had promised. He recalled Keyes saying he had driven through Indiana on his way to Vermont. And lo and behold, in June 2011, a big missing persons case hit Indiana. June 3rd, 2011, Lauren Spirer, a 20-year-old sophomore at Indiana University, went out with friends and was never seen again. Young, white, blonde, Pretty, smart, well-raised, her disappearance was covered by the national media, and I remember this well. Kat Nelson managed to trace Keys, driving through three Indiana toll booths that night. They went to Keys and pushed a picture of Lauren in front of him. Did you do this? Telling him he was right outside Bloomington that night when Lauren vanished. He laughed, quote, that's how hard it's gonna be for you guys to figure it out. End quote. Keys would maintain radio silence for weeks. Luckily, just prior to silent mode, Keyes hinted that it was possible a few victims had lived. Summer nineteen ninety six or ninety seven, when he and the family moved to Oregon, they went to the beach. Israel noticed these remote bathrooms. Really isolated, very private. He'd taken someone to one of these, but he hadn't killed her. Hiding until the beach had thinned out, he waited for a girl, 14 to 18 years old, Keyes guesstimated, to straggle behind her friends. And Keyes grabbed her, dragging her into the bathroom. He'd committed sexual assaults before, but this was the first one where he planned it all out in advance. So, aha, he had assaulted people back in Colville. This girl, he tied up and raped her. But she kept talking and didn't seem afraid and told him he was a good guy. Even when he told her to shut up, she kept talking and he kind of lost his nerve and he let her go. And immediately regretted it. But when he heard nothing on the news and read nothing about it in the papers, he felt lucky, not smart. Florida was another state where Keys worked construction. And there was a serial killer there, the Boca Killer, hunting at the same time. August seventh, two 2007, a mom and her son were at a mall exiting near a parking lot. She remotely unlocked her black SUV, settling her son into his car seat, and went to throw the stroller when she saw a man sitting next to her son in the car with a gun. Shocked, she got in the car as he demanded. This woman is called Jane Doe. He told her to drive, and he only wanted her ATM card, taking her cell phone. If she did what he said, he'd take her back to the mall. Jane fully cooperated. Her little son had fallen asleep. He handcuffed her, pulled out zip ties, binding her neck and ankles, and put a pair of sunglasses on, holding it in place with duct tape. Jane panicked, straining, choking, she couldn't breathe, and he loosened the tie Is that better? he asked. Yes. Now this reminds me of Keith giving Samantha Koenig water and when she was cold, putting tarps over her. This assailant and Jane switched places with him driving as she held on to that act of kindness giving her a bit of hope. Stopping, he pulled a knife and in terror she begged him not to kill her. When her son awoke and dropped his bottle, The man picked it up and gave it back to the boy. He retied her by the neck, running a knife up and down her throat. Using her cell phone, he oddly asked what number he could call so someone could pick her up. She gave him the number of her son's father. Holding the phone to her mouth, she said, please come get me. My truck is broken down. Glasses removed, they were back at the Boca Raton mall and Jean got a glance at his face. Quote, if I see anything on the news, With my face or my picture, I'll come after you, end quote, because he had her driver's license. Closing the door, he was gone. Jane managed to untie herself and report the kidnapping to police who didn't believe her. Things like this didn't happen in Boca Raton. She took a lie detector and heard nothing for three months. In November, she got a call from the Palm Beach Sheriff's County office They were working on the abduction of a woman from Boca Raton Mall. Back in March, she too had been driving a black SUV. Her name was Randy Gornberg, 52 years old. 39 minutes after Randy's abduction, a man called 911 to report he'd seen a woman pushed out of a black SUV. The driver then took off. Turns out she had been shot twice in the head and was dead. Her SUV was found abandoned behind a Home Depot, and Jane was the only lead in the case. Another similar case, November 12, 2007, the murders of Nancy and Joey Bochicchio, mother and daughter, age 47 and 7 years old. Their bodies were found in their still-running black SUV in a parking lot of the town center in Boca Raton. Both had been bound with zip ties and fatally shot. Their credit cards and cell phone were found hours later in Miami, and this case remains unsolved. Jane told police that her kidnapper had a kit, carrying zip ties, handcuffs, duct tape, sunglasses, goggles, a knife, and a gun. A sketch artist created a likeness that did resemble Israel Keys. However, no more evidence was recovered. A year later, the Boca Task Force was dismantled. Author Maureen Callahan describes how this murderer did too many similar things to Israel Keys: Hunting in the daytime, taking people in their cars, the ATM withdrawals, not knowing the daily limits, kill kits, targeting pairs, tying up women by the neck. Keyes' whereabouts during these events was unknown, but he was traveling. The FBI had made some progress. Recovering a kill kit in Eagle River, Alaska, buried sometime in May 2011. In Naya Bay, agents Ted Halla and Colleen Sanders searched for the bayliner boat that Keys had used, but found nothing. By now, agents had identified eight victims, three known. The remainder were unknown, with a few hunches. Late October, Keith sat across the table as the FBI tried a new strategy. Pressure was lightly applied as they blamed their bosses for having to make progress. Israel had to provide some information, given he was kept flush with cigars and Americano coffees. They suggested his name might be leaked to the media. But Keyes turned it around. He was actually considering, quote, maximum publicity, end quote. Like he could speak to a national media outlet and expose the Fed's plans to refuse him the death penalty in exchange for more victims quote, there's not much more you can offer me, end quote. His contempt was just infuriating. Godin spoke up. Deborah Feldman pushing her photo in front of Israel. She was the strongly suspected body in New York. A vulnerable person, drug addicted, and a sex worker, Deborah Feldman had gone missing in New Jersey on April 8, 2008, while Kius was driving through the state the same day. Keyes' reaction was surprise, a tell that he didn't expect her to be identified as one of his victims. Godin continued. The FBI and New Jersey were looking deeper into Feldman. Keyes refused to speak about Deborah, but began rubbing himself, his obvious tell that he was reliving the killing. Feldis chimed in, quote, her name was on your computer, end quote. The rubbing got harder, I'm not going to talk about what's on the computer. Felda said, quote, There's something more to this story with Deborah that you don't want to tell us now. End quote. As Keyes confirmed, I just don't want to talk about it. October 30th, Holla and Sanders had come all the way from their field office in Washington to speak with Israel Keyes, blowing up his ego. Why had he bought the bayliner boat? Was this all part of his plan to get rid of the bodies? Keyes said he loved boats and had built them since he was a kid mostly canoes and rowboats. Holla and Fanders had found other boats. Holla believed that these boats facilitated the disposing of bodies, perhaps in Washington's Lake Ortsit itself. Once again, Keyes was unwilling to speak on this. Holla and Sanders had reviewed his work records, and Israel often took leave for funerals. He admitted lying to everyone, citing reasons for doing things that were rarely true. Quote, i take trips to eastern Washington and say I was going to see old friends. I may have gone to eastern Washington, but not to see old friends, I quote. He also admitted he kept his timeline tight, so his involvement in any murder would seem impossible, just like he had with Samantha Koenig. It had almost worked. In Anchorage, was Keyes overworking himself to stab off his compulsion to kill? Quote, There are a lot of distractions along the way. It's one hobby after another with me. But when the sun goes down, it's all, as he chuckled, it doesn't matter how many hobbies you have. It all comes back to the same thing eventually, end quote. FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood wrote, quote, Some people just rape and kill because they enjoy it, end quote. And that's Keys. He said once he got going, there was no other rush like it. And once he built a tolerance, he had to escalate to the next level. Then everything shifted. Keyes casually mentioned, quote, like, guns were always a big hobby for me. Explosives and stuff. End quote. Hold, Hold up. Explosives? Bell asked if he made bombs. Quote. Yeah, I would tinker around, mostly just designing stuff, end quote. He used mostly black powder-based explosives, and yeah, he used them while committing crimes. Halla asked if he was, like, breaching, you know, with explosives, blowing open a door. And he confirmed, quote, the first time I blow a lot with a pipe bomb, end quote. Still in shock, Bell asked, quote, like a shed or a garage or something, end quote. No, no, no. Think Bigger Bell. A forced service gate. That meant government grounds. That admission transformed the case. Within minutes, the bomb squads on both sides of the country deployed to his Alaska house and his New York property. How had they missed this? What had Keyes plotted? Burning down churches? Was he going to blow them up instead? He'd been friends with Chevy and Cheney Keo as a teen, who implicated each other in the Oklahoma City bombing. Keys had been raised to hate the federal government, white supremacy, survivalist mentality. He regarded Timothy McVeigh as a hero. What the bomb squads recovered has not been released, but the Keys case was reclassified, terrorism. Continuing to interview Keys, he said, "Quote." Clearly, the whole situation is turning into longer term than I anticipated. From my perspective, at this point, it's a one-way street. And initially, I thought there were ways I could manipulate the situation, this case, all the related cases, to my benefit and on my timeline by withholding information and giving information out. Over the last few months, I came to realize I can't do that, not realistically, end quote. He was actually sincere in this realization. What Israel Keyes' grand plan was, or who else he may have murdered, remains unknown, because on the night of December 1st, 2012, Israel Keyes committed suicide in his prison cell using a razor blade and noose. Under his bed was found some artwork he'd done, 12 skulls drawn on 8 by 10 paper in his own blood with the words, we are one written underneath. And his final clue? Belize. The picture of these skulls is on my blog, too. Bell and Payne believe the skulls mean Keys killed 11 people, the 12th skull representing him. They believed Keyes when he said that his final number was less than a dozen. Gannaway, Tacone, and other Asians believe he killed far more people than that. I think he killed more people than 11. He just liked it too much. Payne theorized that he didn't kill until after he left the military. I disagree, although he may have abstained from murder while in the service. I think he did kill Julie Harris and Cassie Emerson and her mother Marlene back in Colville in 1996 when he, quote, burned a trailer, end quote. It's just too coincidental. They are just the early first victims that a fledgling serial killer like Keyes would select. He said the birth of his daughter changed him and he wouldn't mess with kids. But his daughter was born in 2002, six years later. And let's face it, Keys lies. When the news story broke, calls about possible encounters and sightings poured in from everywhere. Him approaching people on beaches, national parks trails, campgrounds, even their porches. Much remains unknown. Other victims may be identified and recovered in the future. Bodies in Lake Crescent could be located if the funds ever become available. A hearing was held regarding procedural failings given his suicide at the Anchorage Correctional Complex. You think? They were warned that he was suicidal Keyes killed himself between 10.12 and 10.24 p.m., bleeding out. For some unknown reason I deem utter stupidity, Keyes was moved out of a suicide cell and given a razor in spite of the sign saying, Do not do this. The correction officer on duty stated he performed all his duties, updated paperwork, and did security checks, his last at 5.30 a.m. Quote, At no time did I see anything out of the normal for Keyes Israel, cell number three. Keyes was rolled in his blanket as he was every night, with no part of his body showing. At 5.57 a.m., another guard saw what looked like blood, yelling for help. The body was stiff, no pulse, no color to his skin. Paramedics were called, who found not only blood all over the bunk and pooled on the floor but two cups and two milk cartons with blood in them, clearly to deter blood from making a larger, more visible pool on the floor. Guess how he slashed himself? Keyes had taken a razor blade, embedded it into a pencil, and used it to slash his wrists, a pencil he was not supposed to have. To be certain, he looped his bedsheet around his neck and tied it to his left foot, strangling himself. His multiple page suicide note, soaked in blood full of rants, was investigatively useless. None of the 45,000 pages of documentation the DOJ has has been released under claims of national security. This case remains open. Murder bookies, if you have information concerning keys or know someone who might, please contact the FBI at one eight hundred call FBI. The contact information is on my blog. A little update I stumbled onto while doing some research. Kevin Feldis, our favorite federal prosecutor. Where is he today? now working successfully at a Perkin Coe law firm in twenty nineteen Kevin Feldis hosted the Perkin Coey podcast white collar briefly episode. Building rapport. Wait for it. On new research on interrogation techniques. Interviewing a retired FBI special agent. Discussing interview techniques. Kevin Feldis. Whoa, the 2012 2019 learning curve must have been steep. Uh, but from my research, it appears that Feldis has been a very successful litigator. And Kevin, I really do wish you well. I just had to laugh at the irony. Life's interesting twists and turns. Thank you for listening to episode 48, Macabre Chit Chat, and to my trilogy on American Predator by Maureen Callahan. Next up, do not miss my interview with retired FBI agent Bobby Chacon, who led the FBI dive team that recovered Samantha Koenig, coming in two weeks. What a conversation. I appreciate him taking time to educate me. And my choice for our next book is A Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. In 1962, Jerry Sherwood gave up her newborn son Dennis for adoption, and 20 years later she set out to find him, only to discover he had died before his fourth birthday. What happened to the little boy Jerry never forgot? She begins asking questions, demanding to know what happened to her son, which unlock a 20-year secret wrapped up in apathy and silence. You will love the book. Trust your guts murder bookies. Thank you for listening. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email at Jill at Club.com. You know I love hearing from you. And please leave a five-star review. It really does make a difference? and helps me to grow the podcast and make new Murder Bookies. Subscribe where you listen to podcasts and let my episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Source material, show notes, photographs, snack and drink information for the American Predator Trilogy is found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved.